This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hi, Ashley. Hello, Candy. Hey, it's been a while. It feels good to be back doing this again. It does. My my ears are already itching from the <laughs> Well, that we doesn't just sound very started. positive. I know. <laughs> How are you today? Do you want to explain why your ears are itching? I don't know. I don't know if there's a real reason. They just itch. <laughs> oh. Everything, like hats, when I put hats on, they itch my ears, and I don't know. It's just itching. It's probably a winter thing. You know, dry skin. I don't know. You cold. saw my hair earlier when it was like a little, it looked like I'd been at the science museum and touched that ball <laughs> where it goes. Just a little static. It was. You've changed clothes a few times today. I have. That's what happens. We did some promo shoots today. We did. It was exciting. Yeah, I can't wait for you guys to see those. That's our day. <laughs> about the episode, mm-hmm. this is one that I know you're going to be super excited about because I you am. have requested this from day one. Like, I have. I Originally, when we first started doing this, I was like, Candy, every once in a while, I'll do an episode and I'll give you a break. <laughs> I tried to write this episode for about three months and I finally went, you know what, Candy? Clearly, this needs to be your show and I need to be the listener. But I thought of this after our very first episode. So I've wanted you to do this since January 3rd of 2021. Yeah, because your first story reminded me of Mm -hmm. this. And it was it was the line where where you said that he unfortunately, you know, killed his friend and then he went to play practice or he performed. Yes, he went and performed. You were talking about Daniel Wozniak and it brought you yes, yeah, made me think of Bernie Teedy. Yeah. Well, we're doing Bernie TV today. I know, I know. And so that's what I thought we would start with is how do you know about his case? Like what brought him to your attention and what made you so fascinated by the Bernie TD murder? Story? Yeah. Uh, you know, what it was my genesis? It was many years ago. I believe that there was one of those true crime, like 2020 or Dateline. I'm not sure, but I feel like I saw that first. And then I saw where they talked about that they did a film. Mm-hmm. So I watched the film with Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine and I was just fascinated by this story because to me he seemed like a victim of gaslighting Mm. and narcissistic abuse and I thought they portrayed it in the film really well of how a person can fall into these kind of relationships and then it just drives you to the brink. The other thing that was so intriguing is he was so beloved by the town. Mm-hmm. So the murderer was beloved by the town and the the victim was not. And then I sought out the article. I did some Googling. So then I sought out the article by Skip Hollinsworth, which mm-hmm. is what it was based on. And I read all about it mm-hmm. Be- just because I was so intrigued by who is this person? Why do people love him so much? And right. when we decided to do this, I actually wanted Skip to come on our show. And I emailed him and asked him. and awesome. 
would have been really cool. <laughs> he said that he is contractually obligated. He cannot talk mm-hmm. about this outside of, and I don't know for what reason, but he wished us the best and wants to listen to it. So hello, Skip. Yay. And um, yeah, so we could quote from his article freely. So I'm, I'm interested to see your take on it because I purposely just like, I told you a little bit that I knew, but I wanted you to discover Bernie on your own and let me know what you thought of him. Well, I appreciate that because as you know, I had absolutely no, no knowledge yep, of nothing. that case before mm-hmm. you told me about it. I had not seen the movie, but since I started to dig into it, I immediately became fascinated and, and just hearing you talk about it, of course, piqued my interest. And when I started to research, you'd mentioned Skip Hollingsworth, but he came up immediately anyway. Yeah. His original article in 1998, I believe, called Midnight in the Garden of yes. East Texas yes. was fascinating. Yes. And he's the one, I think, who broke the whole story to yeah, the it public. Says, it says in the credits that the film is based on his article. Mm-hmm. And in learning a little bit more about the case and Skip Hollingsworth, I kind of got caught up in a little bit of a, a rabbit trail there really? because, oh yeah, I ended up listening to, to Skip's entire podcast on Tom Brown's oh, body. I have not heard that yet, but I wanted to. But it was fascinating. Oh, and, cool. and, you know, yes, so I, I have now become a little bit of a, a Skip fan myself. But I also, of course, had to watch the movie too. Yes. And the yes. movie was really, really intriguing mm-hmm. because on the one hand, we'll talk, I know we'll talk more about this later, our impressions, but it was interesting in, in that it was a black comedy, yes. a very serious crime, but then it's handled in a way that also, again, it's kind of darkly comic. Mm-hmm. So it was super interesting, very well done. The way they stylized it to mix it with documentary style mm-hmm. interviews, and then they were able to go back and forth in time where they would be talking about someone and then talk about that person's death, but then they would show that person mm-hmm. when they were alive, especially with her husband. You know, they were talking about Marjorie's, Marjorie mm-hmm. Nugent's husband and they were talking about his death, but then they flashed back to when he was the branch manager and showed him or showed how he would do with people so I just thought very that easy to yeah, style but super yeah. easy to follow I mm-hmm. liked it a lot I like the style a lot yeah I thought it was very well done well I'm really glad that Skip Hollingsworth gave us permission to use information because I ended up pulling quite a bit from a number of sources mm-hmm. but one of the key sources was his work mm-hmm. he not only had the original article but some later things so so mm-hmm. we're gonna hear a lot of things that come from his research yeah and also from a 48 hours episode 48 hours maybe mm-hmm. that's what I saw that was called the more Petition, the Murder, the Movie. And it was a fantastic source. I bet that's what I saw. I bet that's it. Because it Mm -hmm. included interviews with Jack Black, the director of Bernie, the Mm -hmm. movie, which was Richard Linklater. It included numerous quotes from Bernie himself. They Mm -hmm. had interviews with him. Mm -hmm. They had townspeople. They had family members, both on Marjorie's side. But also, well, I guess they didn't have any, uh, now that I think about it, of Bernie's family members. But you had family members from the Nugent family. And then townspeople on Bernie's side. absolutely. And and even some of the prosecutors. Okay. So it was very interesting, very well done. And it gave me a little bit of a different angle for this episode than what I anticipated. Okay. Because what I did not realize was how it would come full circle. You started, you intrigued me by talking so much about the movie itself. Yeah. And what I came to realize through doing this was the incredible role that that movie ended up playing in Bernie's story. Yeah. And so that's kind of what will give us the little teaser before we go back and start in from the beginning with Bernie's life. So remember, the theme for this month is murder, mystery, and madness. And it was very interesting 
one of the quotes that Richard Linklater gave in that 48 Hours episode was the fact that he wanted to do Bernie's story because he thought it would be so intriguing to explore the question of whether the nicest person in the world could be capable of the worst act. Mm. And that's what led to the title of this episode and also what you said earlier about how everybody loved him so much. Mm -hmm. So the title of this episode is Bernie Tita, Most Loved Murderer. And that's what we're going to kind of dig into. Okay. Is it Tita or Tita? In the film, they said Tita. I literally listened to the interview and wrote the pronunciation down so that I would get this one right. Tita is how he Mm -hmm. said his own name. Okay. Yeah. So going back to the very beginning, Bernie Tita, the second or Bernie, was born on August 2nd, 1958 in Abilene, Texas, and he did not have a happy childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember some of the things that happened with him? Um, I remember reading about after the trial, so just go ahead oh, and walk okay. him through it. Okay. Again, because I'm pulling from that interview, I do have a lot of quotes. So from Bernie himself, here's how he expressed this incident that happened when he was very young. My daddy and my mother, they had a car accident, and my mother was riding in the passenger side of the car, and daddy never forgave himself for that. He never forgave himself for that. So he was three years old when his mom died, again, riding in the car, and his dad went into a depression after that, Mm -hmm. said he really was never the same. Bernie's father was the chairman of the fine arts department at a junior college, at least at one point. And then somewhere along the line, he started drinking very heavily, and he ended up dying. I'm not sure of what cause, but he ended up dying when Bernie was only 15 years old. Gosh. Yeah. So it was not, it was not an easy childhood. In fact, his quote, he said, so a lot of death occurred in our family. Which would see why he would be drawn to the death industry. Yeah, that's a good point. To help support himself and his sister, Bernie took an after-school job at a funeral home, and he also started doing yard work, and eventually he started helping out with the funerals, and all of this, of course, was to make money. But I'm sure he was interested in it, Mm -hmm. because when he was older, he got an associate's degree in mortuary science from the McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So Bernie's sister, I don't think, liked to speak very publicly in interviews, but somehow or other, Skip Hollingsworth did get a quote from her that he included in his 19th. 1998 article, and here's what it said. I really think that because of the loneliness he went through in his childhood, Bernie made it his calling to serve people in times of their own need. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that seemed to be a theme. It's going to come yeah. back time and time yeah. again how much he really liked to help out other people. Yeah. Bernie was 27 in 1985 when he moved to Carthage in East Texas, and it was a small town of about 6,000 people. According to Skip, the people from Carthage were conservative, politically and socially, and known for being the kind of residents who would get out of their cars to see what neighbors they could help if there was a traffic jam around the town square. There were comparisons made to it being a place kind of like Mayberry. Mm. Carthage was located about 20 miles from the Louisiana border on what used to be one of the largest natural gas fields in the world. In fact, Back in the 40s and 50s, it was known as being the natural gas field. And this is a big deal because it means there was a lot of oil and yeah. a lot of money A lot there. of money. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's where Mrs. Nugent's money came from. As a matter of fact. It is. It mm-hmm. is. Okay. Yes. To follow this out, so by 1995, Carthage was not only voted one of the 100 best small towns in America, but it was also known for being the birthplace of people like Tex Ritter, Jim Reeves, and Linda Davis, who was a backup singer for Reba McIntyre. Okay. And so even though it was a very small town, 
Town. It was a place that housed a lot of wealthy people. That is a that's a lot of famous people from just that small square right. area. Tiny place. Yeah. And there was a lot of money being made in oil and gas there. Mm. Bernie took a job working at the Hawthorne Funeral Home and moved into an apartment that was actually just right behind the funeral home. Okay. And he was really good at his job. Yeah. In the movie, some of the way they started showing him. <laughs> Buff the nails. You don't want a mechanic's nails to look like they've been in a, in a hair salon or something like that. Oh, that was such, that was so well done. The funeral director who hired him, Carlton Schamberger, was quoted as saying that Bernie was probably the most qualified young man I have ever seen. He waited well on the families. He would sing solos behind the screen during the funeral, and he was a darn good embalmer. He had the talent of making the hair of the deceased look really natural. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh at that. I that's know. actually a really that's good a, thing. That's really sweet. That's a really good thing. But as you kind of previewed, Bernie was not there in Carthage just to work. This man immediately launched into every aspect of town life. Mm-hmm. He was unbelievably popular. In fact, a lot of the townspeople would say the old ladies in particular loved him. Yeah. He just strikes me as someone who wanted friends so badly. Mm-hmm. He wanted a family. He wanted someplace to belong. And it's just he tried successfully, but he was trying so hard to create his own little found family. What you said, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I think it's later in my notes. But Jack Black said something to the same effect because he met Bernie. Yeah, he, yes. he had lots of meetings with him. And he said Bernie was a person who needed to be loved. Yeah, desperately yeah, needs to be loved. Yeah, that was how he saw him. So in getting involved in town, he did everything. He attended the First United Methodist church where he sang in the choir taught Sunday school and occasionally even preached sermon where one elderly member was even quoted as saying let me tell you he was doggone better than the paid preacher (laughs) (laughs) he also got involved in the Panola College drama program where he directed and also starred in several productions and he sang with a professional singing group across the state line in Louisiana and was on the Chamber of Commerce's Christmas decorating committee that's a lot of stuff he was also a gourmet cook Oh my god. Oh my gosh. I know. Everybody adored this man. He was doing everything. Skip Hollingsworth wrote that Bernie seemed to make it his personal mission to make every person in Carthage feel special. He liked to shake hands. And this is how Skip put it. When doing so, if he asked how someone was doing and they replied not well, it was not uncommon for him to drop everything until he had done his part to rectify that situation. Yeah, to me, this it's just speaking of deep loneliness. And Mm -hmm. I am going to, what's that quote, be the change you want to see in the world yeah he is being or be the person you needed when you were younger right so he is being that to everybody to everyone yes. yes yeah that's a good insight to finish out this quote skip said that he sewed curtains helped with tax returns and bought so many gifts for the residents that the ups truck began making daily deliveries this is back in 1998 yeah so or no before 1998 right this is actually let me go back and check my date again 1985 wow Yeah, this is a long time ago. So that's a big deal. It is a big deal. I think we've made this point very clear, but just to drive it home, in an interview, two of the ladies from the town literally agreed that he was like a god in their community. That was how they phrased it. Really? They said people adored him. Wow. So now to the part that you foreshadowed. In 1990, the town lost one of their 
most wealthy and influential members, which was the town's leading banker and oil man, Rod Nugent. Okay. They described him as being hard-nosed and tough, but fair. Okay. And when he died, he was estimated to be worth around somewhere between 5 to $10 million. And he and his wife, Marjorie, owned a 6,000-square-foot stone home at the edge of town that was surrounded by a stone wall and electronic gates. Wow. Yeah. That's a fortress. They were rich. They were rich, rich. Yeah, they were. And Bernie was the one who was put in charge of Rod's funeral. Had he worked his way up at that point? It sounded like he'd been there for several years Mm -hmm. and yes at this point he was doing everything from singing to leading the services Mm -hmm. to the embalming he could do it all okay yes so this was not unusual that's a big deal to be in charge of the Mm -hmm. richest man in town's funeral that's a good point it sounded like this was not unusual that he handled a lot of these um, situations bernie not only embalmed rod nugent and got him ready for the funeral but of course he met with mrs nugent to make all the arrangements and Mm -hmm. then since he handled the service for her husband himself he would check in on her he later told other people that he could see the lonely etched in Mrs. Nugent's stern face as she stood by the casket. When she started shivering, he gave her his coat and he was there to comfort her. Yeah. So he sang a hymn and then he helped her to the car for her trip to the cemetery. So he was just taking care of her right. all just the way through. Self. And then as this is his quote, as I often do with the widows, widowers, check on them, go by the house, make sure they're all right. Mm -hmm. So that's what he did. After Mm -hmm. it was all over, days later, weeks later, he would show up at the house and he would check to make sure that she was doing okay. And he says, this is what he did for everybody. It was not a special thing for her. This is just what he did. And in the interview on 48 Hours, the interviewer asked if these people would appreciate him dropping by. And Bernie said, oh, very much so. And again, he emphasizes this was his custom. So Marjorie was 74 years old when she lost her husband. And she was, of course, very wealthy. And everyone in town agreed, or nearly everyone, that she was really, really mean. To illustrate some of her qualities, people talked about some examples such as the fact that she refused to speak to one of her own sisters who also lived in Carthage because of an argument the two had had back early in the 80s over their dead mother's estate. Mm. And she had so many disagreements with her own son, the two of them barely spoke. Another famous story was that she refused one time to pay a vet inside the town, you know, of Carthage, $45 because she felt he had overcharged her and she argued him down to a cheaper price. You have the money, Marjorie. Right. And then a close relative who did not want to be named Mm -hmm. even commented to Skip Hollingsworth that, Quote, Marjorie was a very difficult woman to love. But Bernie felt sorry for her, and so he started to spend more and more time with her until people in the town began to talk mm. because it just felt off to them. Mm-hmm. First of all, the couple is 42 years apart in age. Yeah. And even things like seeing them walk around the town holding hands. Yeah. Yeah, which Bernie explained as she was wobbly. He was helping uh-huh. her, but things just felt a little weird Mm -hmm. to the people in town. And then, only a few months after her husband's funeral, Marjorie asked Bernie to leave the funeral home, and she hired him to come work for her. Only a few months? Uh Uh-huh. That's what it said in the article. Really? Mm -hmm. I thought it took longer than that, but okay. I think it happened pretty quickly. Wow. When the interviewer commented that people thought Bernie was taking advantage of her for her money, Bernie, in the interview... Claimed he never wanted her money, but then they also brought in some of the family members who strongly disagreed. Here is a quote from one of Marjorie's granddaughters. I think the fatal mistake my grandmother made is she ended up buying a $30,000 headstone from Bernie Tita, and from that moment, 
he marked her. Mm. It was very interesting. If you watched the 48 Hours episode, which I would recommend. It was fascinating. You really hear... The two sides? The two sides. Okay. You really do. Okay. So Bernie, of course, he's sharing how his job was very challenging. He was helping Marjorie with anything she needed. It was everything from making her coffee to checking to make sure she was okay to Jack Black said things like clipping her nails. Yeah, they showed that in the film. mm -hmm, It was everything she needed. She was kind of a personal manservant. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, again, some people are speculating it was a romantic relationship. They're thinking Bernie was leading Marjorie on that she thought it was romantic while he did not. In this interview, Bernie 100% denied that and even revealed that he was gay. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, I'm a gay man and it's hard to be a gay man and being out in a small town. And the interviewer said, did Marjorie know you were gay? And he said, we never discussed it. Mm, I don't think they would have. Now, Jack Black said, I think the attraction for Marjorie was the same as it was for everyone in town. He was just a lovable guy. And when you spend time with him, you want to hang out with him. So there are different sides to this. Everybody's perception, of course, is different. But people were noticing because less than a year after her husband's death, Bernie and Marjorie were hanging out all the time, even to the point of taking trips together. Bernie admits, we'd go up on a Friday morning, then come back on a Sunday evening. We saw Broadway shows. We had a lot of fun together. They took a cruise together and reportedly shared the same cabin. Mm. Again, you would see them around town holding hands. It was all of these things that made a lot of people talk and, and get suspicious that he was taking her for her money. It was adding up funny. It was. So Bernie who as a mortician had made about 24000 a year, now had access to Marjorie Nugent's fortune. He had access to, reportedly, she had around $6 million, and she let him freely spend this money. Now, how did he have access? Did she give him some kind of power of attorney or something like that? Well, it said that he was able to get to her checkbook. It talked about examples such as how she would pay for him to have flying lessons. Okay. So she would buy him things, she would take him on the trips, but somehow he had absolute access to her money because it talked about all the things that he would buy with it that he could spend on his own without having to consult her exactly okay yeah in fact it mentioned he was constantly behind in his own american express payments and he owed the irs four thousand dollars in back taxes his sister was quoted as saying that bernie was a biaholic Mm-hmm. She says, quote, he not only wanted to experience the finer things in life, he loved buying as much as he could for others. He'd order the same items over and over, like three of the same chairs or boxes of cross pens, just so he could give them away. So he had access to her money and he was buying. We'll come back to that in a minute because he got crazy with how much he would do for the people in town. Again, it just sounds like I need friends. I'll do whatever mm-hmm. it takes to get friends. That's actually where Jack Black came in with a comment that said it was very important for Bernie to be loved and he and whether that was buying it through gifts or through service yeah he was constantly working on that we haven't gotten to this yet but it wasn't long after Bernie started working for Marjorie that she changed her will and left everything to him that's wild to me Mm -hmm. yeah we're not but I guess not so wild because she was already mad at her family Mm -hmm. she wasn't speaking to most of them and she liked Bernie and he was a good companion so I guess it could make sense and according to the way it's portrayed in some sources and this episode she thought she was in love like she like really I mean they different people including her family we'll hear a few quotes in a moment they thought their grandmother believed she was in a romantic relationship with someone who returned that same love okay yeah so again different perspectives yeah Mm -hmm. but that's where they thought she was coming from so almost like a second husband Mm -hmm. so 
He talked about all the different places he got to go. He enjoyed the traveling. He enjoyed the trips. He enjoyed the money. But on the flip side, working for Marjorie became more and more difficult. This is that quote from Jack Black. He was her manservant, the guy hired to take care of her every need, whether it was clipping her toenails, all the nitty gritty. According to Bernie's friends, he had to have Marjorie's medicines laid out every day. If he wasn't at her house by 1145 for lunch, she would become extremely frustrated, almost panicky one man said, and would call his pager incessantly until he arrived. If he was visiting someone else, Bernie would have to interrupt whatever he was doing at regular intervals to check in with her because he said, quote, if I don't call her, she will give me living hell. That's a quote from Bernie. Yeah, see, this is where it starts to come into that whole uh, gaslighting relationship. I guess it could kind of fit the pattern of it was a very fast friendship started mm-hmm. as a friendship and then he fell into it because he need I'm trying not to be like armchair already but I'm talking through it as we go mm-hmm. is he needed a friend so he fell into this and then oh my gosh this friend has lots of money mm-hmm. and I'm living a life that I never had as a kid so he's kind of going along with this and if she's in love and it would make sense that very quickly in the honeymoon phase quote unquote she would leave him everything and then do all this nice stuff and then it starts to fall apart Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was in an emotionally vulnerable state, yeah. having lost her husband. Yeah. And here comes this young man giving her all this attention to her, being kind as can be. Of course, she's showering him with things, but that's part of how she keeps him, right? She probably recognizes that it's giving him all of that that's keeping him around and and making him put up with whatever she does. She clearly doesn't like to spend money on other people if she won't give it to her family or spend it on her relatives. Or her cat. Or or her her cat. Or whatever (laughs) it may be. But she's seeing that, oh, I'm in love with this guy. And if I spend this money, he'll stay. Mm -hmm. So she's investing in this person. And, and I think that's the inference we're making. Yeah, and it yeah. makes sense. I mean, here's some more evidence related to that. She just kept piling the gifts on him. She gave him cash, clothing, cars, the flying lessons that we talked about. And it sounds as though she might have even given him a plane. With the money she advanced him, he bought a two-bedroom home about a mile from Marjorie's estate. He put out a collection of black and white plastic penguins, which apparently was something that he it just was loved. Film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I saw those in the film. He, he said they were very well-dressed. He liked them. <laughs> he hung white curtains in the living room window. He displayed his collection of more than 70 wristwatches in the hallway. Wow. He threw a Christmas open house, inviting members of the Chamber of Commerce, professors from the college, all the VIPs from town. And according to his sister, quote, Bernie found himself living a dream. For the first time in his life, he got to be somebody. Right, right. And it sounds like she's tapped into his love language. If you know anything about the five love languages, like gift giving is a love. Clearly, that's how Bernie shows love is giving gifts. Mm -hmm. It must be how he feels love too is getting Getting gifts gifts. yeah that makes sense and here's a little bit more about that we were speculating about how it happened i just found it in my notes it said unbeknownst to mrs nugent he started slipping money out of her hefty bank accounts and using it to buy gifts for people in carthage Mm. he bought at least 10 cars for people who couldn't afford one i thought he didn't do that till after the event he did it while she was still alive now i don't know the exact timeline but this sounded as though it was happening even before yes telling them he'd tell the people pay me back when you can. He bought a home for a struggling young couple. He provided scholarships to students at the nearby college. Mm-hmm. He pledged $100,000 to a new building campaign at the First United Methodist Church. I think all this happened after. Okay. I think. That, at least in the film it did. It may be. It so could be. let's just say we're not sure on the timeline. But there. Okay. I like that. And and you may be right. I didn't like check my timeline yeah. on when this happened. I think this was in the nine months. After. Yes. Okay. Yes, I think so. In addition to all these things, it mentioned, of course, Marjorie had filed that new will, leaving every 
everything to him and nothing to her family. In the interview, Bernie denied encouraging her to do that. He said, she just brought that to me one day. It was in 1991. So that would have been probably two years after her husband died. So now we're flashing forward two years. Now it's 1994. And this is when a rift really happened with her granddaughters. Because according to one of the granddaughters named Shanna, she said they had gone to visit Marjorie. And when Marjorie opened the door, she said to her granddaughter, I don't know who you are. And Shanna said that her reply was, what do you mean you don't know who we are? And Marjorie said, I don't know who you are and you need to leave. So the granddaughter went on to explain that they entered the home anyway, immediately noticed all the pictures of Bernie. Uh And they asked Nanny, who's this? And Marjorie said, well, he's my friend. And the granddaughter was going on to explain in this interview that the thing that disturbed her most was that she couldn't find any pictures of her grandfather. They were all gone. And... Her quote was, she was like a schoolgirl in love. Wow. Wow. So, so another thing, while I'm, and I'm saying these as I go, because this is so complex that I mm-hmm. feel like if I don't say it, I won't remember later. A thought I had while I was rewatching the film. Yes. Do you think that she had signs of dementia? And that could be why she just said to her granddaughters, who are you? Well, that's an interesting point. And that could point. be why she was being, that she turned mean. Like if we're going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And the reason why she got so cantankerous with him is it was advancing. That's an interesting It's an interesting idea. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Well, the granddaughter went on to say, we believe my grandmother was in love with Bernie and believed that he was in love with her. So they straight up said they felt like their grandmother had fallen victim to a sweetheart scheme because they actually interviewed more than one granddaughter. I believe there were three of them. Okay. That visit was the last time they saw her in person because she was so ugly to them. They didn't feel welcome. And then it ends up that it took a while because they were at college and they were, they were distracted. So it took a while for them to start to say, Hey, we're not hearing from her. Things are wrong. So let's just kind of go back to Bernie now and we'll, we'll return to those granddaughters in a second. Along the same timeline, things are getting worse for Bernie. He, had been with Marjorie now five years and at this point he is now feeling trapped and he desperately wants out. Mm -hmm. According to him it had turned into what he termed an abusive relationship. He used words to describe Marjorie like abrupt, demanding, possessive. It had gotten bad. Yeah, which to me still fits with either a, I don't know what to call it, narcissistic, abusive, emotionally abusive relationship or advancing dementia. Mm -hmm. Or both. Or both. Yeah. But sometime in 1995, Bernie told his sister he thought ah confirmation Ashley what I didn't remember this because I've been researching so much sometime in 1995 Bernie told his sister he thought Mrs. Nugent was developing a mild dementia (gasps) whoa how about that that's wild yeah okay Mrs. Nugent Marjorie had fired the gardeners he said because the flowers hadn't bloomed on time See, it just mm-hmm. feels like that's mm-hmm. with her falling in love with him, she could be reverting back to her younger self, and that's why she fell in love. So she also made Bernie buy a 22 rifle to shoot the armadillos that were rooting up her front yard. Yeah. And Bernie's sister quoted Bernie as saying, she's so controlling, it just wears me down. Yeah. Bernie's sister asked why he didn't quit. And Bernie supposedly gave her this tortured look and said, because I'm her only friend. Yeah. I have to stay because I'm the only one she has. That makes sense with the way he is. It does. Yeah. Bernie also told a friend 
the story of how he was in this heated discussion with Marjorie that made him tell her, I can't do this anymore. I can't be your friend anymore. I just can't do this. And Bernie said that Marjorie became very distraught and said, you can't leave me. You're not going to leave me. No one has ever left me. He explained that he backed his car out of the garage and by the time he got out there, she had locked the yeah. gate on him. They do this in, the, in the film. The mm-hmm. But in the film, he says, you make it very difficult to be your friend, Marjorie. Mm-hmm. And that's when she's like, you're never going to leave me. And she closes the gate. And he goes on to say that he finally broke down and said, okay, I won't leave you. Gosh. I won't leave. Before we keep going, should we take a break here? Yeah, let's do it. Poor Burn. So we were talking about how bad things had gotten for Bernie. Mm -hmm. To follow up on that, Jack Black gave a comment where his take on it was that Bernie was just not built for conflict. Like he didn't know what to do because he he didn't know how to get out of a situation like that because he was so caring for everyone. It's super hard. Now we're skipping to 1996. Okay. And this is where the tragedy occurs. Yes. All right. It's actually on November 19th of 1996. In the interview, they asked Bernie to tell about that day. And here's what he said. I had gone out to the house to make coffee early, 7.30, got her up. And this was interesting. Okay. In this interview itself, his attorney was sitting right there. Her name's Jody Cole. She was the one doing the appeals. And she suddenly stops this interview and says, that's enough of that. I don't want you to talk about the shooting. And stops him and does not let him Why? tell. Yeah. Well, because things... Thinking ahead about, and spoiler alert, trial, sentencing, appeals, all those different things. She never wants him to be on tape telling about the day of the shooting and what actually happened, apparently. She doesn't want him to give a record that could be used against him if he said something wrong. But he already confessed to it, didn't he? Isn't that on record? Well, let's hold that thought. Okay, I'm holding it. I'm holding it. All right. So what happened was Bernie ends up shooting Marjorie in the back four times with a 22 caliber rifle. Now, here's how it actually happened. But how do we know this? Bernie would have to have said it at some point. Okay, it's in my pocket. I'm holding it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting, I'm waiting. So this quote came directly from the granddaughter, Shanna. The first bullet in her back makes her paralyzed. So she falls straight down onto the concrete. He shoots her again. He then walks straight up to her body, puts the muzzle to the gun to the back of her head and shoots it two more times. Those details were not in the movie. No, they were not. No, No. they were not. Now, we're going to come back to all this because this is going to be important. In the interview, Bernie did confess. We know that. And as he's talking about it here, he says, I'm sorry that happened in my life. I caused the death of somebody I loved. But what we know is that Bernie did not immediately confess. After he murdered her, he actually hid her body. Yes, this is where he gets into trouble in my mind. Like, if he had just called it in right then, he'd have had a semblance of a disassociation, temporary insanity, any of that kind of stuff. But to mm-hmm. me, this is where you get into the like, oh, Bernie, this right. is where you not, no pun intended, dug your own grave. Right. Because what happened was, as far as everybody in town knew, mm-hmm. Marjorie just disappeared. Yep. Days go by, weeks go by, months go by. Yep. Nobody has heard or seen this woman. The family has been trying to contact the grandmother. They get different stories from him mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. Friends and fa- everybody is getting different stories. He is making up different things about nursing homes or she's sick. Or, and so it, he told somebody she had Alzheimer's. Another time he told somebody she was in the hospital, but the family wasn't buying it. And they said that they had left her alone for a while because she'd been so ugly to them the last yeah. time they visited her. They were busy at college, but they became increasingly concerned because they were very suspicious of Bernie. Yeah. And then when they would call 
call or they would try to contact her and they would get all these different crazy reports, they became much more suspicious of Bernie. According to one of those granddaughters, they came to suspect that she was either locked up in the house or he'd already killed her. So was it them that alerted the authorities or the stockbroker like in the film? I can't tell you exactly, but Mm -hmm. the family was pushing on it. The family was very involved in pushing on it because it said that nine months went by and on August 18th, 1997, the Nugents shared their concerns with a local sheriff. Nine months. Nine months had gone by. Mm-hmm. And one of the granddaughters, Alexandria, was actually in the car with her dad when they went with Theref's deputies to visit the house. She could tell immediately no one had been in there for a very long time. In the interview, she mentioned her grandmother was a child of the Depression, which means she knew her grandma never wasted food. So... She was the one who knew that if her grandmother had left that house, she would have put everything she kept in the refrigerator or her freezer, which was located in the pantry. So she's the one who went to that freezer, that deep freezer, and noticed the tape on it, which was very suspicious, and broke the tape and opened the lid. Her granddaughter found her. Yes. And they saw the top of her grandmother's head in the freezer. So, of course, they were immediately suspicious and they knew that Bernie was right at the top of the list. He was easy to find. He was right there at home in Carthage. And when the sheriff's deputies showed up and they brought him in for questioning, he said, I was so relieved when they came for me and arrested me. It felt like this big weight had been lifted off my shoulder. He confessed the same day, told him that, yes, he had murdered Marjorie back in November of 1996. Now, this was something they made a point of telling us because I think they really were trying to show both sides because when you watch the movie, I do think it's very slanted towards Bernie. Yeah, I think so too. And I think in this interview, they really wanted to make it very well-rounded. So they had a comment from the DA, Danny Buck Davidson, who was played by Matthew McConaughey in the movie. Right. And he said, I think it took two days to thaw her out and for them to do an autopsy. And even the director of the movie, Richard Linklater, commented, it's grim, you know, when you see an old lady on video being pulled out of her freezer. Those are the images that stay with you because I think he actually saw yeah the... and they say that in the film too mm-hmm. he said uh, Danny Buck says in the film it took her two in the courtroom scene I believe it took two days to thaw her out just oh. to get an autopsy so awful. Danny Buck Davidson would go on to charge Bernie with first degree premeditated murder and he's really first degree premeditated mm -hmm, and he sought the penalty of life in prison but this is the part that was crazy despite the confession despite how horrific the murder was a lot of the community members were defending Bernie saying if he did it he must have had a good reason yeah they were going with the we have a play called he need to kill him and Mm -hmm. this this town was like well she need to kill him Mm -hmm. if he did it then she must have deserved it yeah in fact they kept saying he was such a good guy some folks even said that he was next to being an angel and to that the da responded and i said he's an angel all right he's an angel of death that was in the film too (laughs) according to marjorie's granddaughter alexandria he saw her as a mark he stole her money and when he was about to be found out he shot her and killed her but that is not how the people of the town saw him a quote from that 1998 skip hollingsworth article says from the day that deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying, poor Mrs. Nugent. This is a quote from the city councilman Owen Joffrian. He said, people here are saying, poor Bernie. Yeah, it just doesn't fit with his pattern. If they had 
dug up in his um, past that he had done this to other old ladies and taken their money and done this sweetheart scheme or something like mm-hmm. that, then I would say that's a leg to stand on. But this just, this comes out of nowhere. This, mm-hmm. he'd never done anything like this before. Right. I don't think he'd even befriended any old people, any old ladies and gotten their money before. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Right. Well, it said so many people were defending Bernie or suggesting that, that they just straight up let him go that the DA decided he had to ask for a change of venue. Yeah. Yeah. And he was granted that change of venue. The trial was moved 50 miles away. It was held in February of 1999 in front of a jury who did not know Bernie. That's probably the the smartest thing he did for his mm, side. For sure. The prosecution argued that he did everything out of greed and betrayal. Of course, the defense said that he killed Marjorie in an act of passion yeah. and her murder was not premeditated. The trial lasted less than a week. The jury took approximately 20 minutes to no. find Bernie guilty. 20 minutes? 20 minutes. So nine years after he met Marjorie at her husband's funeral, Bernie was sentenced to life in prison, which was the maximum sentence. And Bernie admitted he deserved punishment. I deserve time, was the quote that Bernie said. I've done a particularly horrible thing, the worst thing in my life. But here's where the movie comes in. Yeah. Richard Linklater, that director, attended that trial, was struck by Bernie's story, which was when the idea for the movie came to him. He and Skip Hollingsworth wrote the Bernie screenplay together. They brought it to Jack Black. He agreed to do it, but one of the things that he insisted on was he had to have a chance to meet and visit with Bernie because he wanted to know him better I as think a that's person. A good idea. Yeah. And he also wanted to really try to understand what happened. About that idea, Jack Black said, you're playing a person, you have access to them, you mm-hmm. gotta go see them. I agree It's with just him. one of the rules of the game. Yeah. The movie Bernie came out in 2012. Critics loved it. Although, as we've said, it was something of a dark comedy, as you would expect. Marjorie's family felt it was horribly disrespectful to their I would grandmother. Say they would, yeah. They mm-hmm. also questioned truthfulness. They felt like it was slanted. Okay. But now, was it true? Or are you going to cover this later? You haven't... Did you bring up where the, the daughters, the granddaughters sued grandma to get her money? Because that's in the film. I did not. And that's why they weren't speaking. Oh, I didn't yeah. take note of that. Because on the, on the stand, uh, the defense attorney says, when, when was the last time you spoke to your grandmother? And she says, I can't recall. He says, you can't recall? It was four years ago when you sued her for her money and she says well I felt we were still close in our heart (laughs) so he's saying you're so close to your grandma you haven't talked to her so that what was again could not be true don't know but that's what they had in the film is why they hadn't spoken Mm, that's interesting okay I didn't remember that well an interesting twist was at the end of the movie premiere which was held in Austin Texas that was the hometown of the director Richard Linklater he was approached by Jodie Cole now I don't know the timeline I don't know if she was already Bernie appeal lawyer or if she became his appeals lawyer because of this but she ends up being the lawyer that represents him and her comment was about how the murder was portrayed in the film how it showed bernie kind of snapping so that's why disassociation i have purposely avoided talking about that Uh until now because Mm -hmm. i knew that this was going to be something that we would want to talk about in this moment okay tell them how the murder is portrayed in the movie ashley okay so in the movie uh he he is, they are walking in the garage and he is following her out and she, it, it follows the scene with the armadillo, I believe, where she's been berating him and telling him, he, you can't even shoot a simple armadillo. She's telling him to use the gun to shoot the armadillo that's in her garden. Well, you're going to have to fill in all these holes and you're going to have to do this and that and that. And then, oh no, that's, then he's clipping her nails and he's asking her something and she's just being mean to him. And then they walk.
walk out in the garage and he sees the armadillo gun. He grabs it. He shoots. And then you hear three more. You never see it happen. Mm -hmm. You hear three more. Or or he aims the gun. He sees her face chewing where she always used to chew to annoy him. And he Mm -hmm. just has this like flashback and you hear four pops. You see clearly not Charlie McLean drop to the ground. You don't see any blood. Mm -hmm. You don't do any of that. And then he immediately goes, Marjorie, are you all right? Mm -hmm. Are you okay? And he starts crying and he's like, oh, you know, he's crying. He's going, Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do now? And he looks over at the freezer and then it shows him at play, play practice Mm. immediately after that. He's smiling. And to me, it, what they are trying to portray is a clear break from reality Mm. and a clear disassociation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what struck this appeals lawyer too, because she said, Richard Linklater quoted her as saying, I bet there was some crazy stuff going on at that trial. And she speculated that Bernie had not been given a fair trial because she commented, quote, I want the world to know that Bernie Tita is a good person and that this outcome is unacceptable because she was focused in on exactly what you said, that disassociation, mm-hmm. how he snapped mm-hmm. as opposed to premeditation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jody Cole, this appeals lawyer, asked Linklater if he had the transcripts from Bernie's 1999 trial. And he did oh. because he had done his research for good that for movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He brought her the box and she scoured through them knowing that the key again would be that idea of premeditation. So between looking through the files and talking with Bernie, 16 years after the murder, they came up with a new defense, which is exactly what you just said, that Bernie had had a dissociative episode. Mm -hmm. And so this is what Jody Cole said. They are overwhelmed with stress and emotion. They actually disassociate, which is to leave their body. I think he even says, it was like I was outside of myself or I saw myself Mm -hmm. doing this. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. Yeah. The way they described it was, it's as though Bernie's body was reacting, but his mind was not there. Just yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. To help explain how this could have happened, this is when Bernie also revealed a deep secret. He claimed to his lawyer that he was molested by his uncle, mm-hmm. which started when Bernie was 12 years old and continued until he was 18, although his uncle denies it. So Jody Cole took the argument and her findings to the DA, Danny Buck Davidson, and he found it so compelling. Yeah, he said he wouldn't have gone for that much if he'd known about his childhood. He wouldn't have prosecuted him that. Right. So he switched over. But then he was accused of being influenced by the movie too. Right. And also criticized for, yep, exactly. So in this 48 Hours interview, the DA, Danny Buck Davidson, he was asked what he thought caused Bernie to commit the murder. And he said, quote, the child abuse and the abusive relationship. I think he did not plan on killing her. And then he said what you just told us. He wished he'd asked for a lighter sentence. He truly believes Bernie did not mean to do it. That his actions were the result of his childhood sexual abuse compounded by the abuse from Marjorie. So he went to bat for Bernie himself and on May 6, 2014, Bernie's life sentence was thrown out. And just like you said, I had a note here that it was so funny that the first time Danny Buck Davidson took all this heat for prosecuting him and now when he defends him, he took the same heat. Like right. like he he could not win. Like right. no matter which way he went, people he were hating gonna, on yes, him. Yes. But a new sentencing trial was ordered and Bernie was released from prison while waiting for the new trial. Tell him where he lived. In the director's garage apartment. Yep. That was actually a condition that he had to be sent to live there with them. Really? Yeah. Richard Linklater picked him up when he was released and let him live in his apartment. And Jody Cole was supposed to give him 
employment, and she did. That was another one of the stipulations that he had to have in gainful employment, so he worked as a legal clerk for his appeals lawyer, Jody Cole. He also became immediately involved in that town. He joined a gay men's choir and became a regular at the Pastor Sid Hall Church. He was a free man for a two, I think about two years. Yeah, I think it was only two years. But then the new sentencing trial came along, and Bernie was being prosecuted by new lawyers. Their names were Jane Starnes and Lisa Tanner, and these two felt like Bernie had been Hollywoodized. Mm. They felt he had abused and stolen from an elderly woman, and he deserved the full punishment. Lisa Tanner alleged that Bernie had regularly forged Marjorie's signature, manually manipulated her bank accounts, and altered her brokerage statements. All of this was both, oh, this answers our earlier question, was both while she was alive and also after he had killed her and stuffed her in her freezer. Okay. So again, this lawyer said that it ended up being approximately $3.8 million that Bernie had taken from Marjorie. And she said it was the motive for the killing that he felt like he was about to be found out. I don't know. I mean, he was her beneficiary in the will. He could have just, not to be crass about it, but he could have just waited it out and he would have gotten everything. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're thinking logically, but you think about some of the stupid reasons people do do terrible things. Yeah, yeah. So after two years of freedom again, the new sentencing trial began in April 2016. It was moved to Henderson, Texas because Bernie still had so many people in Carthage who loved him. They still didn't want to have it there. Richard Linklater testified in defense of Bernie and Bernie's uncle was also questioned about the allegations of sexual abuse. He again denied under oath he'd ever molested Bernie, but he did admit to writing Bernie a letter that was sexual in nature. Come on now. Bernie did not testify. And on April 2nd, 2016, the jury again sentenced Bernie to 99 years in prison. So he is now back in prison and will not be eligible for parole until 2029, at which time he will be 70. And the 48 hours episode that I've quoted so much ended by noting that even today there is a Bernie Tita fan club in Carthage smaller than it used to be yeah but it's still there wow I know crazy right yes okay so armchair psychologist armchair psychologist we just need to talk about what we think about all this. Okay. I mean, do you think it was a dissociative episode or do you think he killed her because he was about to be found out? I still think disassociative. I tell you why. Because things, only Bernie knows the truth. Mm-hmm. Only Bernie in his heart, between him and God and, and Mrs. Nugent, who didn't even know because she wasn't even looking at him. Nobody knows but him. And if the truth isn't out there, things keep bobbing to the surface. Mm-hmm. And the way this case just keeps popping up and it feels like it's not quite resolved Mm -hmm. it's just it's like this is not a great comparison but like uh the the mysteries of the world amelia Earhart. when nobody knows what happened to her it Mm -hmm. keeps coming up so we clearly don't know what really happened to her because when the truth is out it kind of rests and this just hasn't rested Mm -hmm. for me i mean it's been years that i've heard about him and he just keeps bobbing up in my mind and like this doesn't feel right and yes he did it Mm -hmm. he even says he did it right but i just feel like and maybe the film has influenced influenced me but I've, I've read a lot of the articles too it was a long time ago and I, I purposely didn't reread them so that you could feed me the information from your point of view mm-hmm. but I don't think that was the kind of person he was and I don't think he was that great of an actor nobody is that like for them to say that he was doing all this to manipulate the town manipulate everyone he didn't have that kind of record he just wanted to be loved he found someone that was showing him the kind of affection he had never had
bad. If what his uncle did to him was true, then he had all kinds of emotional baggage that he was carrying and he just wanted, he wanted the love, but he didn't want the sexual, at least with Mrs. Nugent. Mm -hmm. But then you've got... He was either clearly leading her on or he was um, just not able to confront her and say, it's not the way you think. Mm -hmm. He was just kind of going along to get along until it became too much. What else was I going to say? Oh, and the nine months. Mm -hmm. It's the nine months. Mm -hmm. Can you disassociate for nine months? Uh, no. You can lie. You can try not to get caught. You can, it can be a snowball that just gets past you. That's the hardest thing to get over for me. But if the only thing on the table, if I was on the jury, the only thing on the table is, was this premeditated? I couldn't say that it was. You could not say it was premeditated? No, I could not say that it was premeditated. Okay. So to play devil's advocate. Sure. Well, first I will start by saying when you see the way Bernie is portrayed by Jack Black in the movie. Right. And when you actually see the man in his own interviews yeah. firsthand, he's just the most likable guy. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't help but love him. You can see where he would be someone that you would be drawn to, who's just so charming, who just seems like he cares so much about people. So I understand that part. But I was really struck by the way the movie purposefully portrayed Jack Black as, I mean, Bernie, played by Jack Black, as being totally spaced out as he commits the murder. The way mm -hmm. that they have him just kind of almost in a trance. You could, mm -hmm. you know, they, it was very clear that they were giving that idea of he was almost in an out-of-body experience experience. Mm -hmm. But then when I read the description of how she was murdered but in again, the back of did the head. Did he say that? For, no, that was factual okay. evidence. Okay. How she was murdered, it was four shots in the back of the head. I mean, in the or back of the body. Two in the back and yeah. two in the head. Yes. But there were four shots in the back. That struck me. And it also made me realize the people making the movie are, are there to tell a great story mm -hmm. who are very good friends with Bernie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, not that they would intentionally you know, tell something negative, but were they biased in their telling were they you see what I'm saying so that to me seems suspicious so to, to us the two pieces of deep evidence that are like eh, are the nine months and then the back of the head yes and also just to kind of address the point you made I don't know that Bernie went into the relationship trying to scam her from no, the beginning I, I think, think so. that he was there to be to be kind to her it was mm -hmm. working for him yeah he liked trips he liked money he liked spending time with her yeah things got worse but in the beginning he probably thought this is wonderful I it was wonderful for her you know, I'm helping her. She's she's happy. So I think he went into it and I think he probably got sucked into it. And so I don't even know if it was the romantic part as much as maybe all of a sudden he realized I'm three and a half million dollars into this woman's yeah. money yeah. and I am now miserable with yeah. her and I don't know everybody in town loves me. I can't have my reputation ruined with them. How, how do I get out of this? What do I do? Like, was it just a panicky moment? Was it a... And it could, that could have all hit him when it happened mm -hmm. yeah you know that could have just been in his head and that could have been what the body was doing but the mind just went on vacation somewhere yeah i don't know i just again i don't know that we'll ever know the truth i'm very shocked that she did not get some time taken off with that disassociative abuse all mm -hmm. of that that just that's the part that blew my mind i would have had a hard time believing people would have just said he's innocent you have a confession mm -hmm. you have a murder you have evidence you have and the if theft. the former prosecutor was also saying i would not have prosecuted this mm -hmm. to this level had I known these extenuating circumstances. Right. So even he is saying lighter sentence. Yeah. So why not at least reduce it? To manslaughter. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It does make me wonder what other evidence they had that yeah. perhaps we didn't hear about. Maybe. Or was it just a really tough jury and Could a have been. Do very you feel like group of prosecutors. Do you feel like it also, and I don't want to make this a thing, but just another thing to think about. If this was a female who 
shot a man who was was abusive abusive, would it have been you know the the victim was elderly Mm -hmm. and they couldn't maybe couldn't imagine that she was that bad quote unquote but if you had this frail woman who was saying i was abused and as a child and would it have been the same you also bring up another interesting question which is type of abuse yeah because i'm guessing that with marjorie it was all verbal abuse emotional abuse emotional abuse Mm -hmm. whereas i don't know if even a woman would get off as lightly if she murdered a man who verbally abused her as a man who physically abused her or abused her in a different way so i don't know if that plays into it as well i still think emotional abuse does not get the same weight Mm -hmm. as the physical because the physical they can see the marks they can see the broken bones but emotional as you and i both know is still just as bad it's just seen on the inside and how do you prove things like exactly and that's i think what we keep saying over and over again is how can he prove he was in a dissociative Mm -hmm. state Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like what evidence can you bring forth to say no i was totally out of my mind i was totally in this dissociative stance or or trance or whatever you want to call it how do you prove that i don't know Mm -hmm. i don't know i would say that the way he behaved would kind of either go with disassociative or it would go with psychopath and i don't think that he was a psychopath right by covering it up because he said he was relieved when he got caught all of it mixes together in a mixing bowl to make to make a really bad cake it doesn't feel like it's right right because we keep going back and forth but to cry like that and to show such remorse but then to have gone through nine months of acting like everything was great and continuing to spend the money and give the gifts yeah yeah you know like that doesn't really mesh that was bad Mm -hmm. well i'm not sure how to end this well, let's talk about something that we did not talk about from the film, okay. which is the people who played the townspeople. Oh, that was so fun. <laughs> I love the townspeople. Did you know that Matthew McConaughey's mother was one of the townspeople? Oh, no. Which one? She was the one that had the blonde hair, and she was in a couple scenes. There was one scene where she was talking about the lingerie, and the person next to her was just <laughs> laughing. And then yes. in the uh, the scene where they're t- eating breakfast and trying to talk him into, you know, if I was, I wouldn't convict him or whatnot. But there's one scene where she's sitting right next to Matthew McConaughey, and you can tell they look just alike. Oh, I love that. You can tell that's his mother. But she was in it. My, but my favorite one, her name was, I think her name was Kay, and she had this wonderful character voice and her story is that she just showed up to see the film see what's going on and the director heard her voice and said I gotta have this lady (laughs) in my movie so he added her in as many scenes as he could and then he rewrote the ending of the film so that it would be her (sighs) her talking to Jack Black as Bernie when they were doing her interview she ad-libbed the line she said oh honey there's people in this town that would killed her for five (laughs) dollars said i knew this movie was going to be a hit after she ad-libbed that wow her earlier claim to fame do you know what she did what she was elvis's hairdresser are you kidding me i am not kidding you because i looked her up after the movie she ended up working for this director in another film i was gonna say he had to hire her again if he rewrote an ending for her yeah he he used her in another film she got to meet al pacino and Nicolas cage i think wow but her earliest claim to fame is that she cut elvis's hair and she people were saying did you keep any of his hair and she's like no that wouldn't have been professional Hmm. so she didn't keep but the reason i know all this is because i read her obituary she passed away yeah she passed away a few years ago but and, and she was a Carthage resident I don't know about or that but she, she was from around close there close enough that she could go watch the process yeah, close, of filming close enough but her nickname was Baby mm-hmm. I feel I feel like I need to look this up so that I can say her name because I loved her so much so hang on let me look this up real quick she was just marvelous. So her name was Kay Epperson, and her nickname was Baby. Mm. She was an East Texas actress. She died in 
2018. Well, that's quite a compliment to Kay's acting and voice that she made such an impression. Yeah, she was she was just wonderful. I thought I, I love this lady, and she's the one that waves at him from the from the <laughs> church. And yeah, they just rewrote the whole ending where she goes to Bernie and says, "Now I, I wrote a letter to the governor and said that you got to sing at my funeral." <laughs> she said, "I told him you could wear them chains or whatever." That? Yeah, I love that. That's a great story. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Well, I don't know where to land with this, Ashley. I that's mean, the thing. I don't either. Right. I don't either. But I wanted it to. I'm glad you did it because I wanted it to be out there for other people to think about and to go. Do you feel like this was justice mm-hmm. served? I'm still. I still land on the side of Bernie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't even know where I stand. I could yeah. go either way, which is why I do think this was a wonderful episode for our theme of murder, mystery, and madness because we've got all three. That is all three. <laughs> like, he had a moment of madness. It's a big mystery and there was unfortunately a murder. Yeah. So who do we cheers? Well, let's cheers uh, Mr. Linklater and Mr. Hollinsworth who brought this story out, you know? Yeah. Let's sit and said, what do you guys think about this? I made the film and did all of that. And thanks guys for introducing us to Bernie because it gives us a lot to think about. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams. While our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening oh we're a bunch of dummies we're a bunch of dummies you said in our force theater episode remember our connection to the entertainment industry is force theater an actor killed lincoln hello good point <laughs> I was listening to it and i was like ashley and candy you were <laughs> so stupid <laughs> an actor it was an actor <laughs> that's so, that's so true that is so, so true <laughs>